Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. So there are a lot of advantages to certifications. Certifications are predicated upon a couple, three things that <laughs> once you pass buster, uh, prove yourself competent within the scope of, then you receive a certification which then vets you. And should you be looking for help or assistance, going to someone who's certified then presumes based on the certification bodies, then sanctioning, that they are educationally equipped, experientially equipped, and with that, uh, they can then hear and say, or therein say, that they can provide with competency this particular service to a certain standard. Uh, what that means for me is that as I might hold certifications, then I can certainly offer some assurance that I have specialty and training in a particular type of disorder or condition and then meet minimum qualifications, which as a consumer, that's good for you. You know that not only do I have the education, not only do I have the experience, uh, I passed an exam, I did mention that a moment ago, and uh, proven myself knowledgeable. Uh, you come see me and there's a good chance that I can help you. The struggle, however, is that oftentimes certifications are quite limited in scope and specialists, though you may be on the lookout for one, uh, why go to someone for a condition uh, such as eating disorder if all they really are really certified in or their specialty, the thing that they hold themselves out as best in is then alcohol, abuse, use disorders, addiction. Because what does that have to do with then anything to do with eating disorders? And in the same sort of a way, would you want somebody who has just certification in addictions to treat you for other mental health conditions. You could get a specialist for depression. You could get a specialist for anxiety. You could get a specialist for gambling. You could get a specialist for any number of diagnosable conditions per the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And each one would be unique and then give you again that assurance of your provider knowing that. But somehow in all of the specialties, oftentimes it's very difficult to find somebody who sees it in such the big picture way as to know how certain conditions correlate and therein can coordinate either specialties or themselves provide services across a continuum of specialty that then takes us back to the notion of a generalist. And generalists, there are fewer and farther between, fewer of them, and they're more difficult to find than they used to be. Uh, was at one time that your license, as with licensure, then insured and still does, uh, that you are competent to practice over the scope of what the licensure board considers to be a general practice model until the day came that everybody wanted to chase down specialties and then 
forfeited maybe uh, the notion that journalists indeed are the best ones to start with, and maybe some, as with general practice, uh, maybe that's the best place to stay if their competency is broad enough, even though they don't hold certification every possible potential diagnosis, they nonetheless have an understanding and awareness sufficient, and maybe even with that, years of practice, that they could be quite competent and maybe more competent in many ways than somebody who holds a specialty. Another example of that would be adults, people who only see adults in clinical practice versus those that only work with adolescents, those that do only work inpatient versus those that do work outpatient. Uh, those in practitioners, those individuals who as practitioners hold the broadest range of experience and exposure may indeed actually be quite competent. I don't want to say more competent. I'll say equally competent to somebody who has a specialty, but the scope of practice within which they hold that specialty is really quite limited. And you may have to then go see somebody else for this particular thing or that particular thing in addition to them. The power of treating troubled teens Psychology Today, January, February of 2024. Brief stints in drug treatment could divert youth from high crime path. And this article, again, was written by Devon Fry and uh, speaks to, from a criminal justice perspective, uh, just that basic notion <laughs> that there are concurrent conditions and maybe a more generalist perspective or approach might help connect the dots a little bit better. Teens and young adults who abuse drugs and commit crimes are more likely to have repeated involvement with the criminal justice system than those who engage in either behavior alone, research reveals. New findings suggest that treating their addictions could significantly reduce recidivism for youths on an especially risky high crime trajectory. The study, published in the Journal of Criminal Justice, examined 3,000 children between the ages of 10 and 16. They were broken into three groups, no or low convictions, moderate inclined convictions, an average of three convictions, and high inclined convictions, an average of 10 convictions that follow a steep upward trajectory. Within each group, the researchers compared youths who had spent more than 30 days in residential drug treatment with those who were referred but didn't attend. Their involvement with the criminal justice system was tracked over a five-year period. There was no difference in outcome for teens in the low and moderate groups. Yet for those in the high incline group, entering drug treatment had a significant post effect, or excuse me, positive effect, corresponding to nearly five fewer convictions on average between the ages of 17 and 22. The number of serious teen offenders is small, but the findings suggest that comorbid drug problems and their corresponding socio-emotional difficulties may play a major role in escalating criminal behavior. Focusing on treatment rather than punishment could divert teens 
from the criminal justice system and potentially alter the lives, their lives, for the better. Again, the power of treating troubled teens, brief stints in drug treatment could divert youths from a high crime path. The Von Fry Psychology Today, January, February of 2024. Now, from a very <laughs> generalist sort of perspective, one might say, okay, certainly criminal justice specialists know the criminal justice system better than those who have no specialty. And there are degrees, even educationally, that would direct you toward criminal justice and non-clinical sort of application of that knowledge or a common base of knowledge shared between the clinical and the criminal justice system, clinical being psychology, counseling psychology, sociology, or at least sociology to the extent of a clinical social work perspective, psychiatry. Uh, I hope I did not omit any specialties or disciplines. Uh, It would not be because I intended to, but simply forgot. I think that covers all the bases. But out of a common database, the criminal justice specialist is going to look at criminal justice from a statistical standpoint. You can make predictions on that. And with that, the Journal of Criminal Justice is doing specifically or precisely that. It's not drawing inferences within a clinical sort of approach, or again, as I'm going to look at this from a generalist perspective, it's not going to say, well, there are anything more than, there are psychosocial or, as the article put it, socio-emotional difficulties that coexist or are comorbid. Uh, the article, again, corresponding comorbid drug problems. All that means is that the two significantly so occur in combination, particularly within that group of the high incline convictions, which are an average of 10 convictions that follow a steep upward trajectory. It's just facts. And stating those facts, as much as, again, decisions have to be made, as to sentencing and what to do as far as treatment versus more punishment-oriented, which means juvenile delinquency, uh, prisons, jails, penitentiaries, uh, those type of approaches. Criminal justice would just look at the statistics, assist the judge or the judicial system in making a correct determination as to the status of the particular person in a criminal sort of context and what would be best to arrest the effects of that in a general public sort of dimension for the sake of non-criminal activity, preserving the safety of the general public. But clinicians are going to see it a bit differently. They're going to say, oh, okay, well, this is an addiction problem as an example, and then that example would be from the context of, again, a specialty as with a certification, and say, oh, this is an addictions problem. They may even look at it, oh, this is an adolescent problem. Uh, what What we do know, though, is that even as much addictions in adolescence, there are any number of different diagnosable 
conditions for adolescents that may not have addictions or might have addictions that are comorbid or concurrent or co-occurring. And with that then, (laughs) they move one into an area where they are not a specialist. There may be an adolescent. There may be a diagnosable condition. We'll say conduct disorder. And with that, there may be a co-occurring, concurrent, comorbid addiction problem that then gets back to the criminal justice element. And then might say, oh, well, we could treat then the adolescent and the conduct disorder, but we can't treat the addiction, so we'll have to get an addiction specialist involved. And as much as, again, that makes sense because the addiction specialist has just that. Some degree of qualification, maybe certification, maybe just experiential. Not everyone who claims specialization necessarily has certification. That may be something, again, for the safety of the general public. For you, the consumer, you may want somebody, if you're going to take the route of specialist, or at least the recommendation to see a specialist, you may want to say, well, okay, they may hold themselves out, but have they proven it with certification? Is it within their scope of practice from a licensure board standpoint? Does their education then, because of licensure boards, the way that they vet then those within the scope of knowledge for the scope of practice application, Did they have the right education? Did they have the coursework? Did they have all of that in their master's or doctoral program that would then allow them as they pass the certification exam for licensure would allow them to then do a certain service? Again, it used to be from a general practice model, if you held your license, that was already established. Uh, I, once more, would not want to speak badly of certifications. I'm just speaking to the fact, though, that unless you approach this within the scope of at least some ability to connect dots, (laughs) do this from a more generalist perspective, you could get in a trap of missing something simply because you're only looking for a particular thing or only qualified to look at it or your experience, your knowledge base is you've only looked at it within somewhat of a more narrow scope. A sound clinical approach from a generalist perspective where they've passed licensure, again, muster, where they're vetted by a licensure board, and have passed then the basic certification exam should qualify a provider sufficiently to not only treat adolescents, as with the example on today's podcast, but adolescents with addiction problems. And even so, could see the interface with the criminal justice system, though would not want to present themselves as capable of doing that at the same level of a criminal justice major or those that have certification within that discipline or domain or would want to suggest that they understood that in the same way of the criminal justice major, the judicial system, juvenile delinquency, (laughs) prison uh, facilities, Uh, penitentiaries, even then, (laughs) with conduct disorder, there's a good chance that 
within that that there will be a, an adult pattern of criminality. Those that have conduct disorder diagnoses as adolescents are more likely to then engage in criminal behaviors as they become adults. It does make sense since to have a diagnosis of conduct disorder really touches upon the same sorts of circumstances, symptoms, if you want to call them that, attributes, personality even, that would incline a person to get into trouble legally as they become an adult. But again, to know that, you would either have to have had a good instructional base at the master's doctoral level, graduated from an accredited college or institution, then been able to go before a licensure board or committee with certification exam, establishing the credential, and then it doesn't hurt that you've had experience, either in general practice terms, working within a facility that treats a broad spectrum, and you too would have then reason to not only work with adults and adolescents, adolescents with conduct disorder, adults with sociopathic behavior, but also possibly, under the right circumstances, someone who has an addiction, not only as an adolescent, but as an adult. That seems, in general terms, to really sort of represent an even higher ordered sort of approach, perspective, a meta-analysis, I think we would call that, from a research methodology standpoint, you would have then possibly a much better ability to look at that most broadly, to collect all the essential parts, should there be need for specialization, and there still may be need, even if you have a lot of that background and training and certification, even if you hold multiple certifications, you still might want to refer to someone who is very limited in scope. But be careful when you're looking for care and treatment. You don't want to, I wouldn't think, find somebody so limited in scope they cannot, even though quite qualified and certified, you would not want to necessarily limit or fall prey to them being so narrow in the way that they have been either taught, trained, the way they're certified, to miss out on things that might either need additional care or that they may, in within their scope of practice, be able to, or maybe because they don't have that level of licensure or certification at the level of licensure, they can't practice it. That's an unusual occurrence, too, because we've gotten so far into it that addictions counselors do not have to be licensed at the same level that those that are holding of professional licensure when it comes to psychology, psychological counseling, social work, they're not the same. (laughs) Their certification level, their educational level is a little less, and therein they're missing some essential elements. They can't make a diagnosis within the broadest range of American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, diagnostics, 
and in the same way or to the same degree that somebody who does hold independent licensure. That's important to consider. <laughs> and then, as if I'm confusing you enough on the podcast today, let's consider this. There are a lot of individuals that hold themselves out as trauma specialists, and in that same sort of a way, may or may not be able to appreciate the point, or even so, connect some of these multiple concurrent sort of orientations and points of orientation toward this particular sort of problem of addiction and criminality to say this, that trauma underlies a good bit of not only addictions, but criminal behaviors, childhood, adolescent, teen conduct disorder, as well as adult antisocial behavior which then would be the corollary that then would then incline one to be in a prison or a penitentiary or have an addiction problem. Now, again, a trauma specialist may indeed have the broadest of licensure and may see that quite well, even better, I would say, than certainly someone just simply certified in addictions counseling or They would not know it from a criminal justice perspective and should even from a criminal justice or an addiction perspective, they be aware of that data. Again, drawing from a common pool or data pool. They may be able to say that. They still can't address it comprehensively. So as I read the article from my degree, from my licensure, from my qualifications, from my level of certification (laughs) as a certified clinical mental health counselor or even a certified addictions counselor, I could say, I see how the dots connect. It's a bit of profiling. I might say, oh, I am quite comfortable within my scope of practice, what I have proven myself competent to do based on the highest ordered certification, my license, I can treat this. And I can treat this myself, covering all of those domains. But I may also say, yes, but I don't have maybe the adolescent experience to do that. Maybe I don't have the certification as I'd like in addictions. Maybe I do want to have then something of a juvenile delinquency or criminal justice perspective to be able to see it from that vantage point or work within the criminal justice system, even forensic psychology, psychological counseling done within the forensic model. It can be quite complex. I understand why it seems to be much easier to say, oh, this certification, that certification. But it isn't always the most efficacious and it isn't always the most elegant because there are some individuals that do have all of that. Outpatient, general practice, specialized practice, adolescent, adult, geriatric even. Experience, exposure, training can hold multiple certifications have done that within multiple, again, as I'm suggesting, applications and can do it quite well. 
you just have to know. <laughs> and maybe the purpose of the podcast is to say, as I read this article, I'm saying, sure, it makes all the sense in the world. I'd start with trauma. I begin to look at that from a, as again the article put it, socio-emotional sort of perspective. I'd say, oh, well, it's most likely, yes, they're diagnosably addicts or have addictions. But that may be trauma-related. It may also be in trauma, something of a post-traumatic stress reaction, which again has a high correlation to adult, adolescent, as well as adult conduct, as well as adolescent conduct, adult antisocial or criminal behaviors. But maybe it's all trauma-related. Maybe there's disassociation that goes along with it. Maybe there's inability for the patient, now an adult, who was an adolescent. Maybe there's inability for them to really be able to understand the triggers that take them to a form of, I suppose, self-medicating or comforting themselves with drugs or alcohol, as with addiction. Or in that, maybe their conscience has been somewhat disabled a bit, their sense of guilt, shame. Or maybe they weren't taught that because of their upbringing. Maybe they were exposed to some neglect, maybe abuse. Maybe they have attachment issues. (laughs) Maybe they have abandonment issues. All of that, though, really needs to be taken into consideration. And who's going to put all of that together if there's not at least somebody that's looking at it from a generalist perspective? At least somebody that can see it in that broadest continuum of care sort of orientation. Somebody who has the background educationally, experientially, treatment across different continuum of care models, it's going to be very difficult to put all those pieces together. And I think, I believe, more than think, that's generally where all of this is falling apart. If we really want to treat troubled teens, we need to see what the outcome or the effect of that, if untreated, looks like in adult behavior as well as teen behavior, but we need to go all the way back to (laughs) the beginning of it all, which would then be the socio-emotional foundations of their childhood, intact families, families that are broken, as we used to call them, families that otherwise never themselves, parents, significant others in a parental role who otherwise never themselves resolve their issues. But until we can see it in that way, I think we get lost in all the specialties, as much the old adage, you can't see the forest for the trees. And though I do believe that is a responsibility of one who is practicing, whether you're practicing independently as a journalist or care to hold yourself with a lot of specialties, with a lot of experience and training, or more specialist with at least enough of a journalist orientation, we're supposed to be aware sufficient to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, 
let's do a comprehensive diagnostic interview that has a sound psychosocial assessment of socio-emotional sort of conditions and contingencies. Let's look at childhood. Let's look at parenting styles. Let's look at trauma. Let's look at stability. Let's look at socioeconomic variables, not only emotional, but economic variables. Lest we just start to try to treat them in such the specialty way that we cause more harm than good. It has to be an integrative model, not only of health and behavioral health included, but an integrative model within the behavioral health, within the mental health, the mind health specialty, independent practice even, that has mutual respect for not only health, but interdisciplinary intradisciplinary sort of considerations so that the consumer who I'm presuming I'm speaking to most likely is going to have the best care possible best care available so as a consumer look for certifications as a consumer recognize the most obvious either addiction hopefully it's not sociopathic hopefully it's not conduct disorder Uh, If you're an adolescent, you're looking for an adolescent therapist, or your parent looking for an adolescent therapist, certainly adolescents have been part of their experience educationally and treatment-wise, and maybe certification, uh, maybe addictions, but get someone who's going to do that in that comprehensive diagnostic model or from within that model, and is going to understand the principle not a generality or generalities or being a generalist generalities I think is the proper way to pronounce pronounce that as being then needful but making sure that it's not seen as somewhat dismissive well you don't have the right specialty you don't have the right training we need to go to all these different specialists because as much as you may start there, don't be surprised if in the end, even starting with a specialist, you're still going to have to find somebody that can connect those dots or at least be a very good communicator. And that's a challenge in and of itself as well for many reasons across not only disciplines within a particular treatment orientation of mental health or behavioral health, but also then be able to reach out to medicine coordinating that care, it becomes complicated. And then as these other entities, such as the juvenile delinquency, the criminal justice system, the adult delinquency, I could call it, sociopathic sort of dimension, there's just a lot of requirements for interface. There is a specialty of case management that assists with that. But I just want you to know, as a consumer, that it gets that sophisticated. It can become that complex to make a good, sound diagnosis. If you have any sense that's not happening from the person that you're now connected with or receiving treatment from, ask about it. If you've yet to identify a treatment provider and still looking for one, 
make sure you go to a provider that at least satisfies the minimum it is maximum, but the minimum qualifications, which is maximally beneficial to you, they are independently licensed. They have met the minimum and hopefully then in the same sort of way, maximum qualification, credential, met the requirements for the credential of licensed and then we're going to look at it, then we'll look at it, then we'll be looking at it in this broadest of ways. And indeed, as you speak with them, or maybe before you speak with them, as you check out their background and what they lay claim to as far as credential and specialty, make sure that they're able to meet at the most your general needs, but maybe the broadest so that you might be able to get that under one roof. It cuts down on the breakdowns that are naturally going to occur. The more parts, the more the risk that in a communication breakdown, there's going to be a bit of a fragmenting of the treatment. And we don't want that to further complicate than the resolution uh, the best that we can to remediate or resolve whatever the difficulty might be. You could continue then to suffer simply because it's very difficult at times to tie all the pieces together. Doing it under one roof with one provider would be very appealing to me. But I'm a generalist, and I see it in that way. And my background and my credentials are in such, and my treatment experiences are broad, and my certifications are many, and I've been doing it, once again, experientially, for a lot of years. And probably in that way, I'm going to not only be inclined to look at it, but I may be really helpful as a consultant or in that role of being a consultant consultation. Psychology Today offers, through their website, a list of a directory of providers that meets those similar vetting qualifications or credentials or are vetted in that similar sort of way and can supply you with good information as you have to make that very difficult choice now since I've opened your mind and your awareness to all these possibilities. But that's why we do the podcast, is we want to do the best we can to provide you, the consumer, with the best perspective so you get the best care that is possible. Should you want to join us again, though, we drop our podcast weekly and you can catch us on the platform that you're listening to us upon now. And you can call us in the meantime, we drop it again weekly. Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. But in the meantime, if you would want to reach out, you can. Call us at 304-523-WORD-9673. You can find us online at thewordhouse.com, Facebook and YouTube at WordHouse. And with that, then, you can email me at drndclay at thewordhouse.com. I hope it's been helpful. hope it's not been too confusing. But it can be very complicated. Hoping as well that you get a chance to come back and join us for our next edition of Word. Until then, 
with Dr. Michael David Clay. But until then, I want to wish you the best of not only good health in general, but good mind health, mental health. And until we get a chance to meet again, thanks.